Welcome to Welcome to the Uncharted Territories. I'm Max. And I'm Tina. And we're here to discuss Farscape Season 3, Episode 4. Self-Inflicted Wounds, Part 2, Wait for the Wheel. I really love Zan, and I get it, this is her swang song, but she's been dying for so long. This is, this is, this is like part, what, seven of her dying? This is where she finally dies, R.I.P. Zan, but like, she was my favorite character in the show for a while, but oh my god, this was stretched out so, so much. Yeah, I appreciate that they wanted to give her a send-off, but this is one of those two-parters that would have done well to have been a one-parter. Yeah, that's what they had material for, also. Well, I mean, they did they did want to give her that super long speech. Well, honestly, I feel like there wasn't enough plot in, you know, these two episodes. For one episode, they could have very easily slotted that super long speech. I'm sorry, is Anne dying or is she becoming Jesus? Because yes, like there's strong messianic vibes to everything that's going on with Zan. And she's literally sacrificing herself to save the ship. And also it's a X is wrong with the ship. How do we solve X episodes, which is just my least favorite thing ever. Okay, I know you don't like something is wrong with the ship episodes, but this is another ship is phased halfway through us. I I don't know. I feel like that's a different category. Is it? Yes! Is it? It seems like the same category. Well, anyway, this episode, it, our podcast is probably, well, I don't, I don't want to say it, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen when we start talking? But I feel like this is going to be pretty short because this episode is... Because nothing goddamn happens? It's a lot of action sequences and then a couple of long speeches. But, you know, we'll get into it. I, I honestly, I just remember Zan talking for like 15 minutes straight before sacrificing herself. And it, it seems like, I mean... Honestly, when what happens, happens, it seems kind of like if they had a long stick, they could have done everything and no one would have needed to sacrifice themselves at all. Oh my god. Yeah, that's that's probably true. Oh my god, that's horrific. The thing longer would have saved the day in this situation. Oh my god. Okay, so as a reminder, they went into a wormhole. No, no, no. Something came out of a wormhole. A Star Trek ship came out of a wormhole. Yeah, and got schmooshed up with Moya, and then they fell into a wormhole. They w- John went... Yes, they, they when they tried to escape, they went into the wormhole. They got sucked into the wormhole. So... The two ships are merged within a wormhole, and they need to get out, or else everyone's gonna die. And one of the ships has to sacrifice itself, you know... So that they can demerge and escape the wormhole. Gee, I wonder if it'll be the ship that belongs to the main characters. Well, the Star Trek-style aliens have convinced the rest of Moya's crew that they need to abandon Moya because she's dying and most likely won't survive the split. So. Also, one of the uh, things that are close to people but not human people was unfrozen, and it's Jewel. She's a really annoying alien lady in a leather bondage dress who screams melt metal. Her screams melt metal. Also, 
we only barely get into it this week because there's there's a, just a moment where um, Aaron is like, oh my god, what is in my throat? Oh, it's a piece of Jules' hair because her hair sheds. We will we will only later get into how destructive her hair is also. Neat. She's kind of like a gremlin in that she just wanders around messing with machinery. So at the end of last week's episode, John was looking through the data he had gathered inside of the wormhole they're trapped in, and he came across a Three Stooges short and realized that they're very close to Earth in this wormhole. That one of the wormhole exits is near Earth. And also, a giant wormhole snake attacked him and he fell off of the platform that it pilot is on i guess he's dead forever yeah there's a giant cgi snake thing it's weird because i'm complaining about there not being enough plot but god does this thing feel super unnecessary the the snake part yeah like it feels like kind of a hat on top of a hat which is a weird thing to say when i'm like there's nothing happening but also it doesn't really feel like the worm contributes to the episode much yeah it's a good point John manages to get his pulse pistol and fire off at the worm. And we see when he pulls himself up onto the platform, some blood on the platform, which at this moment we can assume is from the wormhole worm. But it's not. Mm. Yeah. Also, the device that records the wormhole is broken. So now he can't even show Zan and Aaron what he saw, that he's near Earth. And... They all think he's kind of ahabbing this this wormhole and getting them all in danger by with his single-mindedness about this wormhole. To be fair, he was very recently uh... taken over by Scorpius and tried to kill everyone. Yeah, he hasn't exactly been the picture of stability. Yeah, also, I mean, he is. Like, they're in this mess because he wanted to stop and take measurements of the wormhole. Otherwise, they'd have been gone and they'd be okay. Or... Less not okay, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Zan is really leaning into her Virgin Mary aesthetic. I know it's to hide her sores, so Virginia Hay wouldn't have to wear as much extra makeup for as long. But she's got the whole blue robe wrapped around her. She's like... I mean, to be fair, her color has always been Robin's egg blue. It's always been vir- Virgin Mary blue. Mm. So... This is, like, the most nitpickiest of nitpicks, mm-hmm. but are you ready? Yeah. When they're watching the Three Stooges shorts, or when we see what John sees, the Three Stooges short is one from the public domain. Some of the Stooges shorts are in the public domain, and this is one of them, mm-hmm. which means it came out in the 1930s, and John says this means we're at most 40 years away from Earth, 40 light years away from Earth. But if it's from the 30s, it means they're at most 60 light years away from Earth. Light years measure space, not time. Yeah. So, but that's, it's the distance light travels in a year, right? So it's been traveling, because that's the idea, right? Is that stuff that's projected from television travels out into the universe and we can pick it up. That's what happens in contact when we get the transmission of the, the Olympics. Mm-hmm. So if it's being transmitted out to Earth, it's been able, it's been 60 years since it was transmitted, so it's been able to travel at least 60 light years. When would it have been on TV? In the 1930s, that's what I'm saying. 
Were the Three Stooges on TV in the 1930s? Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, it would have been a film. Oh. Yeah, okay, you're right. So the Stooge, the Stooges shorts, there was kind of like a revival of them in the 1980s and 90s, mostly because they were public domain, and that's when we started having, like, package shows on, and, and they started being used in package shows on television. So, okay. Oh, all right. Yeah, okay. All right, John. <laughs> all right, John, you win this round. I mean, I super don't actually know how old TV worked outside of, you know, the basics you learned from d- doing a lot of stuff about TV. Well, I mean, in, in Contact, in the movie Contact, the reason that what comes back is uh, the Olympics is because that was the first thing that was widely transmitted on television. So that's the first message aliens got from us. And then, of course, it's... You'd think it would be all... Uh, Gilgan's Island, just because you know there were three there were three stations, so that must have been on like all the time back in those days. Oh, well, but this is the very first. Th- oh, you mean you mean that's what John should have seen? I mean, just like in all likelihood, if you're just going for stuff that's on the air all the time and has been for a long period of time, I feel like Gilgan's Island's probably been sent out into space the most. You know, the Brady Bunch has never not been in syndication. Really? Since it aired, it's the Brady Bunch has never gone off the air, which is why Partridge Family was more popular while they were both airing, but because the Brady Bunch is the one that stayed in syndication, it's the one that has more cultural heft now. Well, it's like that thing with uh, It's a Wonderful Life, mm-hmm. where there was like a rights issue that made it really, really easy to buy. Like, was it free or super cheap or something? I think it was just really cheap, yeah. Yeah, so like television stations you know bought it all the time because it was super easy to get the rights for it it became a christmas institution because it was so easy to get a hold of which actually brings us back around to why he's watching the three stooges because farscape could get this for free because it's in the public domain yeah i mean it's a wonderful life is a good movie but also i feel like it wouldn't really have the cultural heft it has if it hadn't been really really easy for tv stations to play it all the time yeah i it's fine. Wow. Harsh opinions on It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, it's fine. I, I don't want to get into It's a Wonderful Life. I have issues with It's a Wonderful Life. It's fine. If you want to hear my issues on It's a Wonderful Life, I bet I'll get into them at some point on my Every Christmas Episode Ever podcast, which is coming out periodically on our Patreon. The true villain of It's a Wonderful Life is the uncle. I don't want to get into it, but yeah. it. it... I mean... Like, it's nice that they got the money back from everyone pulling the money, but what's to stop Drunk Uncle from just tossing it to Mr. Potter again? Like, Clarence wants to do what's-his-bucket-a-favor, he shoves the uncle off that bridge. You know, it's based on a short story that does not have a Mr. Potter character. It's just that circumstances are bad. It was the movie that decided they needed a an evil figure. Hmm. Also, oh no, she became a librarian and didn't have to have some dude screaming at her all the time for no reason locking her outside without her clothes and like Mm. yep yep i mean honestly you go back to anything the gender politics aren't great no that's true i really liked bringing up baby in high school i wonder uh, how much that holds up yeah i have no idea but i feel like some of those like old old pre-haze code stuff might have actually in some ways held up better well, Bringing Up Baby is basically the original Manic Pixie Dream Girl movie. 
except in that case it's you know oh she's a rich lady so she never has to worry about anything and that's why she's so kooky i mean i feel like manic pixie dream girls have been around since men told stories but yes i get your point pygmalion the original manic pixie dream girl i mean in some ways isn't inky do the original manic pixie dream girl from the epic of gilgamesh mm. she's a priestess or something <laughs> well inky do is a man but you know fulfills the role god anyway there's blood in pilot's den and john's like yeah it's the blood from the serpent and zan's like no this is the blood from the star trek aliens yeah because they were doing something last episode they're they're trying to make it so that their ship is the one that survives the decoupling this is when we discovered that we knew that they were up to something but this is when we discover that what they were up to was using their ship's tech to make themselves invisible and running around and sabotaging Moya so that the crew would assume that, or, or believe them rather, when they said that Moya was the issue and abandon her. Because mm, they need all of the information they got about the wormhole in their ship because their ship's a living computer or whatever and it absorbed all this stuff about the wormhole exactly they're like it doesn't matter if we die it definitely doesn't matter if you die the important thing is getting all of this information back to our people you know we didn't mention this last week but the ship itself is made up of all of these big uh like silver tubes and when John goes into the wormhole to gather information, the device, the recording device that he takes with him is like a miniature version of the ship. It, mm. they, they look the same. So they were definitely trying to justify this. The ship itself is the computer thing. God, it's mega distracting that they use the Star Trek noises for these. I mean, it makes sense that they're using the Star Trek noises for these aliens, but it is mega distracting. It is so funny to me that you found that distracting because I always found that really pleasant. Like, like. Star Trek has transported over to this show and it does not go well. Does that bother you at all as a Star Trek fan? It, it always kind of bothers me when, like, stuff throws in, like, negative nods to other stuff. Um, not so much. I... Okay, so the thing about Star Trek that this is criticizing is the thing about Star Trek that I like the most. So, Star Trek is a utopian vision of what the world could be. Hmm. And I like that. I like having something that's hopeful. But the fact is, that doesn't seem to be the way that the world really works. And the most popular Star Trek... A lot of people who aren't hardcore Trekkies... We'll say that their favorite Star Trek is Deep Space Nine, usually. And Deep Space Nine has an ongoing plot about a war that the Federation gets into. It, it is it is a war story. And I think the thing that non-Trekkies are latching onto is the idea that all of this bright, hopeful future has a dark side. Like, at some point, people have to fight for it. And, like, in Picard... It, Picard is very dark. It, it, it opens when we find out that Picard has left Starfleet because he feels like it's left behind their mission. They made uh, synthetic life forms like Data illegal because there was an attack on Mars from the from androids that lived on Mars, and it seems 
on the surface to be a very non-Trek response to that, but then you remember that in Star Trek, they eliminated genetic engineering as a concept. They made it illegal. Julian Bashir should not be allowed to be in Starfleet because he is a genetically engineered person. Yeah, I was going to say that gay doctor from that one. Uh... Yeah, because of, the, because of the war with cons people. So, like, that is how they keep their peace. And it's like, there has to be another side of that. And one of the things I liked about Farscape, that I, that I like about Farscape, is that it is about the people who don't get to live in San Francisco where Starfleet is and, and have all the nice and shiny stuff. It's the people who live on the outside, you know, in the uncharted territories. And... Well, one of my fa- Well, my favorite Star Trek is Lower Decks. Sorry, I was going to get to Lower Decks, but please, you go. Go ahead. Okay, so the thing I like about Lower Decks is that they keep the utopian thing from Star Trek, but it's about how you have to maintain a utopia. Like, once you reach that state, it takes constant maintenance. And I know for someone whose least favorite trope is, X is wrong with the ship, we have to fix X. You know, that sounds weird, but I do really like how by not focusing on the captain and, you know, stuff, and focusing on a ship that isn't, like, one of the flagships of Starfleet. They're just like, look, it takes a lot of diplomacy. It takes a lot of... You can't just give one big speech and expect everything to be fine. You need to maintain a utopia. There's a lot that goes into making sure that happily ever after is happily ever after, and it's a lot of the times... It's boring. It's a lot of bullshit and bureaucracy. And I really like them acknowledging that aspect of a future utopia. Yes, I, that's, yes, I, that's basically what I was going to say about Lower Decks. And the Lower Decks keeps the kind of hope core of Star Trek going. And I think that the primary difference for me between the, what if Superman was evil and what if there was a dark side to Star Trek is the idea of a person with Superman's powers being evil is a boring idea because let's be honest, probably the majority of people would be bad if they had Superman's powers. The thing that makes Superman special isn't that he has powers, it's that he has those powers and yet he does good. Mm. Unless you believe Grant Morrison's uh, All-Star Superman, where he talks about how, I mean, this is an interpretation, but Mm -hmm. I buy it, that if you have Superman's powers, you kind of have to be good. Not have to, but like having access to that level of connectivity with people sort of makes you want to be a better person. Now, I like All-Star Superman a lot. There are some things I don't love about it, but sorry, go on. But even that is like Grant Morrison having the inability to comprehend that there might be a person who's as good as Superman is. Also, Superman is kind of a dick in that. I don't love that it's one of those things where Lois still doesn't know that he's Clark Kent. Like, really? (laughs) I felt like we left that in the past, even before All-Star Superman. I mean, we've been making jokes about that since, like, forever. Hmm. But my point is, Superman is, Clark Kent is a good person, and it's a story about, like, what a good person does, and and it's aspirational. 
Star Trek is about how a society is good. And so I think it's more educational and interesting to see what goes into supporting that society. Because that doesn't, like you said, that doesn't just happen. This doesn't feel like a dark Superman take. This feels like one of those things where you're establishing that your own superhero universe is gritty and edgy and you do it by having a Superman pastiche get killed right off the bat. Like like that scene in early Spawn where it's revealed that all of the DC and Marvel superheroes are all dead and in hell because this is a gritty universe and blah, blah, blah. It, it's one of those things where you're like, I get what you're trying to do, but it it really feels like you're just, you know being that edgy middle school kid who's like oh look my property is so much better than x the fact that if star trek you if star trek people were in farscape they would basically immediately all die so i definitely would feel that way more if i thought that farscape was doing an edgy high school look how dark and gritty i am thing it's true that Farscape is darker than Star Trek, obviously, but I think that its darkness comes from, like, a real place of pain, and that, if anything, it's a show about how you heal from that pain. So I, I think that it's um, it's better than The Boys. We're specifically talking about the comic, right? Yeah, I, 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 haven't, have... I haven't watched the show because I hated the comic so much. It was like, oh, oh look my... at us. Yeah, the comic is basically just a very, very long temper tantrum against the popularity of mainstream superheroes, which I get it. Oh, wow, you did the X-Men, but Professor X was molesting his students, and that's why there are so many of them, because they age out of being molested. Uh... To what end? Why? Okay, congratulations, you wrote something gross. I don't like Professor X, but, like, really? You had to be like, oh, pedophilia, oh, I'm so edgy. Or crossed. Right, right. Crossed, which is just next-level zombies. I don't get the appeal of that sort of thing. Like, I'm apparently there's an audience for it because it's very popular, and apparently the show's really good, blah, blah, blah. But, yeah. Superheroes are so corrupt, and, you know bad and that's why they're all like bisexual perverts because you know i'm weirdly puritanical about sex and even though i'm this guy who writes all of this dark edgy stuff and i did a spin-off called herogasm about how crisis events are all manufactured so heroes can just go out and have an orgy and that's bad for some reason i i don't know i actually i read a ton of the boys for basically no reason and I read the first few issues for the reason that the person I was with at the time was way into it. And I I have to admit, I lost a little bit of respect for him then. Yeah. No offense to anyone who likes the boys, yeah. by the way. Again, it's not for, we, it's we do not not wanna, for us. We do not want to yuck your yum. Like, you like the Deadpool kills the Marvel Universe I love stuff. Deadpool kills the Marvel Universe. Hate it. Hate it. But I don't think less of you for it's liking so it. so meta. I love the meta-ness. That's one of the things I actively dislike about deadpool the meta-ness i mean it's it's the second deadpool movie where it's so smug okay wait that that's not fair because i feel like the second deadpool movie does meta wrong 
but we we definitely don't have time to get off on that tangent, especially because I have one more tangent to bring us on. Okay. Andromeda. Yes. Okay, because Andromeda is based on Gene Roddenberry's concept. Uh, I believe I believe he was already dead when they started making it, but it's it's his concept for a show. They basically raided his attic for any like unfinished script ideas he had, and then just produced all of them. Yeah, essentially. And it's not a Star Trek show, but it's it's essentially a Star Trek show where a guy goes into a there's a guy who's in Starfleet and he goes into the future after Starfleet has stopped being a thing is like and is like, oh, my God, it's so dystopian here. I need to bring back Starfleet because clearly if Starfleet was still around, it wouldn't be dystopian here in the future. Yeah, but he walks around thinking that he is the savior of humanity instead of seeing the systemic problems that probably existed while Starfleet was there, too. So it's it's White Savior Complex, the TV show. It really is. But I feel like that does a In that show, Starfleet is supposed to be the great good, you know, the great hopeful good. And I feel like that show does more to show the the dark side of Starfleet than, than anything else ever could. Oh, remember that one episode where he, like... With the kids? With the kids, where he, like, tosses them a, you know boy scout manual from starfleet and was like yeah that's good enough you try not to die kids you're officially under my command but i'm not going to pay any attention to you or acknowledge your existence for the rest of the show well they live in a part of the universe where this one alien species keeps coming and like raiding their their base and killing everyone and they have these massive weapons that they use to protect themselves and he's like well i'm gonna take these weapons away okay kids Good luck. And, well, and he's like, it was he, part of his. He's like, like, don't you have respect for life? It also starred Kevin Sorbo, who is. It probably informs our our reading of the show a bit. Uh, I think the show is straight up bad, but also he gets his smarmy asshole energy all over it. So yeah, I'm not saying it would be like different if it were a different actor, but it might be different if it were a different actor. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Is it is it a writing thing? Is it a is it a directing thing? Well, I think you hit a point where you start to write for the characters, like like you start you start to write towards the actors. Like you notice in later seasons of Friends, how sarcastic Phoebe gets. Yeah, like Phoebe starts to take on a lot of attributes of Lisa Kudrow. Yeah, Phoebe's a lot less of a hippie and a lot meaner in later Friends, but the thing is like. I know it's a Kevin Sorbo thing where, you know, he has to be the... It's a thing with a lot of, I'd say, right-wing celebrities. Probably, honestly, celebrities in general, and it's just more. But there's this weird thing where he has to be, like, the most perfect, amazing person ever in everything he's in. And the whole universe has to revolve around him, and he's, like, the greatest person of all time. And I'm like, that that had to be in the script, right? Because... I've only seen part of season one, and it seems kind of like it's there from the beginning. But, I mean, that was also Hercules, and then he was not in anything else ever until the God's Not Dead movies. Well, and now I will say, in the God's Not Dead movies, he's the villain, but God literally, like, bends the universe inside out so that he gets saved right before he dies. So, saved. Mm. God gave his mom cancer or whatever, and then had him get hit by a car 
he kept those two priests from going to Disney World specifically so that they would be there to save his soul after he was hit by the car. God is like a Rube Goldberg device in these movies. I want you to keep all of this tangents, but we should probably talk about the episode. Okay, so interesting. In this episode, it opens with a sequence where John and Chiana are talking about how they don't trust what the Star Trek aliens are doing. And as we said, we know now, rightly so. And meanwhile, Dargo and Aaron and Stark are talking about how they're not sure that they trust John because he's so obsessed with... Wormhole stuff. With wormhole stuff. And also, you know, they're still a little suspicious about that Scorpius thing. And especially because the echo of Chip Scorpius that's still in his head, they know that he's still kind of talking with that Scorpius. Mm. I I, uh, I don't really think Stark's in a position to... Uh... You know, judge. Also, he still kind of has that hero worship thing of John. Yeah, he does. Although, I mean, he doesn't—he doesn't bring it up here. He's more, you know, observery here. But Stark seems like the wrong person to have in a conversation about whether or not you can trust John. I don't think he is capable of being objective. Well, they don't trust John's judgment. And specifically what they don't trust his judgment about is that they should abandon Moya and go with the Star Trek aliens. This is an amazing sequence, honestly, because they're cutting back and forth between the two conversations and they're doing it with like that spinning Goodfellows shot. Mm -hmm. Well, the two groups reach the exact same conclusion, which is that, as we said, the ship is sabotaging Moya so that they will choose the the Star Trek ship and that the best way to do this is the best way to prove this is to go around and repair bits of Moya and like isolate her different systems so that they can prove that it's the Star Trek aliens who are doing the sabotage Hmm. I I just they, they 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 get to the same place even though you know part of them are excluding the other part because they don't trust John. Also, Aaron coughs up a hairball and starts like, yeah, that new lady's been shedding. And Aaron's like, ugh, gross. Yeah. I do appreciate that everyone is already super fed up with Jewel, even though she's basically done nothing except scream and shed a lot, I guess. Well, don't forget, every time she screams, she melts metal. So things get screwed up around her every time she screams. What an odd power set. So because they had the same plan... John and Dargo both end up in the same part of Moya. <laughs> and uh, Dargo was on his ship, the the ship that they found that we talked about last episode. Mm-hmm. The secret special ship, you know, mm-hmm. the Luxon, whatever. Yeah. And uh, they both reach the same conclusion. Like, they they talk it over and they're like, oh, okay, I guess even though we started at completely different places, we both ended at the same place, which is that... The Star Trek aliens are messing with us and blah, blah, blah. We need to save Moya. Also, this is important. Dargo has been experimenting with this ship and uh, he shows John some things he found out about it. Might be important later. Mm. Some things the ship can do, like <laughs> send out lasers that I don't know what the purpose of the lasers is in actuality. I know what they use them for, but it seriously looks like it's just in case you want a disco night. It, do- it does have very strong club lighting energy to it i mean it probably literally is club lighting 
And also, uh, there's a spa- there's a there's a force field around the ship that can be used. Just uh, throwing that out there. Just keep that in your back pocket. I do like how they're kind of checking in on each other because John's like, "You're not still suicidal, right?" And Dargo's like, "No, you're not still you know hearing the Scorpius in your brain telling you to kill us all, right?" And I'm like, "No." I actually really love this moment. I think it's really beautiful because. Dargo talks about how he failed as a partner with Chiana, and John tells him, you know, advice his grandmother used to used to use. She said, you know, life is a wheel that spins around. And I love this. Dargo's like, are we strapped to the wheel? And John's like, yeah, we're strapped to the wheel. And, you know, sometimes you're, sometimes it grinds you down and sometimes it raises you up and all you can do is wait for the wheel. Take a drink. That's the title of the episode. But also, I just, I love it. I love that metaphor. So, they're going through the ship, and they're talking about the uh, the snake person. They they mention the wormhole snake. Yes. They find, they find one of the Star Trek aliens dead, and is dead from being attacked by the wormhole snake. Which, by the way, we didn't mention this, but last episode, the Star Trek aliens were like, oh, they're fine. Don't worry about it. They, they, wouldn't, they won't hurt you. They, they don't even see you wrong now the star trek aliens have these like gills that can open up and shoot out poison darts and aaron's like hey rigel uh pull the poison darts out of that corpse and rigel's like what why why and aaron's like well we might need them at some point in the future i'm basically playing one of those one of those point and click video games oh yeah this is real king's quest (laughs) you pick up every item just in case you need it later and Zan is losing it because she is close to death and she is not happy. And she's like, well, her eyes go all red, that like rage red that we saw in the episode um, Rhapsody in Blue. Mm. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to go kill that Star Trek alien. And Aaron's like, maybe don't. And I, I love the evolution of their two characters. So now it's time for Zan and Aaron's special last conversation before death because Zan's having them with everyone. Mm-hmm. And Aaron's like, why would you give your life for me? You're this beautiful blue goddess lady and I'm just a common soldier. And Zan leans in real close and she strokes her cheek and she's like, hey, you want to make out before I die? No, but she tells her that she has beauty and worth and she will bring a great light to the universe, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, I didn't mention this with the John and Dargo speech, but John and Dargo talked about how being on the ship together changed them. And Zan says the same thing. Like, being on this ship has changed them all. Because I knew you. It is. It is that moment from Wicked. <laughs> I, it, I have been changed for good. And you know, Aaron Aaron says, Oh, I'm just a I'm just a soldier who follows orders and you know, I, I'm just what I'm programmed to be and no, she's not. Not anymore. And Zan, she was all like Well, Zan is a complex character, but basically when we first meet her, she's all like hippie, peace with the universe, whatever. And the reason she's like that is because she felt like she had to do that and suppress the violent part of her that had killed a man during sex. And now she's integrated herself, right? She's Now she has the revolutionary fervor and has the strength that came with that, 
while at the same time still being fundamentally peaceful not peaceful because she she kills now but righteous more directed in her murderiness meanwhile jewel is moping around talking about you know how sad she is and how much better she is than everyone else and boohoo my cousins are dead wait i think this is important though Mm -hmm. we didn't know what their deal was when we first found them just that they were all near death uh she and her cousins were on a uh were on a birthday pleasure cruise like she was not she was not a scientist or an explorer this is like this is like if a socialite ended up on moya not like she's she's a socialite who ended up on moya and uh yeah i i get how this is bad for her and this is not a great moment for stark but i kind of love that he just flips out at her because she's like, oh, everything has gone so wrong for me. And yes, I know I'm doing that, you know, mocking voice. But really, a lot of stuff has gone wrong for her in a very short period of time. But he's like, oh my god, shut up, shut up, shut up. Like, you know how many people I have guided into death? You know, like, I don't want to do the whole, your problems are the smallest potatoes possible. But oh my god. Oh my god, you are complaining about a splinter when everyone around you has been impaled by evil tree creatures. Also, his 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 girlfriend is dying right now. Like, you need to shut up. This is not about you. Now, I think it's important. Stark is, like, about to kill her. He's like, you want to see something disturbing? And he starts to take off his mask. Like, what is the purpose of that other than to usher her into death? Or maybe just to show her what death looks like and then not usher her into death Mm. which in some ways might be worse and she screams melting uh the metal around them so he stops because he has to deal with the melting metal on a ship that's not what you want also like you don't want him to not have his mask anymore jewel that will go poorly for you well the the mask isn't what starts to melt but yeah that would be bad that would be bad and uh the circuit that blew, Stark thinks that it's from one of the invisible Star Trek aliens. Hmm. And not Joel screaming for whatever reason. Right. So, finally, John and Aaron and Zan all confront the Star Trek alien. And they're like, um, bitch, why didn't you just tell us that Moya would be fine when you separated? Then we would have separated, Moya would have probably died, and that we, we could have, we could have skipped all of these steps. Instead, you had to convince us to come onto your ship. What's up with that? And she's like, I had to be certain that you would come onto our ship. And now we learn about the dark side of Starfleet, which is that when scientists go out on scientific missions, like the deposit on the equipment that they have to put down is their family's safety. And if they don't return or if they don't return with the data, their families are killed. That sounds like a really good way to either not get people volunteering for scientific stuff at all or volunteers who hate their families. Like, I don't know. This seems like a system that's kind of destined to not get you the best results possible. Right. Like, why do you have... I... Yeah, why... Why... How? 
How? That's the word I wanted. How do you have such a scientifically advanced society if that's how you advance science? I mean, by its nature, that would make people not want to take risks. Right, exactly. Uh, anyway, they're like, well, now your cover's blown, so the invisible guy running around, tell him to come back. And she's like, I can't, because he doesn't have a communicator or anything. That's how you're not able to track him. And he's invisible, so... Uh, oh, well! Looks like we've got a real Marcy situation on our hands. Ah, yes, from the uh, from the episode of Buffy, the season one episode of Buffy. Yeah. So I do love that they use the DRDs. The DRDs have the uh, disco light thing, I guess. Uh, was this something they had before, or is it something Dargo's like, hey, I'm going to lift the software from this ship and give it to the DRDs? Uh, we've never seen it before, so I think he lifted the software from the ship. But they're uh, scanning for the invisible dude. They've released a lot of smoke into the area, and then they're waving the lasers to to find him, so to see where he shows up, which is, like, great. Like, that's so smart. And uh, Chiana gets hit with one of his poison darts, so now they're running around the ship looking for him with Chiana riding Darga's back. Mm-hmm. It's I, This feels very, like... This feels like the quintessential Farscape to me, right? Like, the one person has been injured, and they're, like, riding on the back of the other person who's still running down, hunting down the person. And Dargo shoots, and we see the blood from the from the guy, and... A handprint on Moya's side. Also, the camera does a bunch of, like, loopy things when we're following during the chasing. Yeah. This kind of reminds me of there's an episode of Todd in the Book of Pure Evil... Uh, where one of the students at Todd's school gets the Book of Pure Evil and uses it to make himself invisible so he can creep on people, mm-hmm. you know, without being interrupted. And he has this, like, ultra gory death scene that you can't see at all because he's invisible. Ah. Or he, because he, he's got Todd tied up in the basement and he's going to kill him. But then he, like, he falls into the furnace and then he accidentally runs into, like, a chainsaw that's set up on the wall. And he's just, like, screaming and describing all of the stuff that's happening while Todd's tied up in the center of the room. Wow. <laughs> it, it's a pretty funny scene. I, I, I like Todd in the Book of Pure Evil. It's a very early 2000s show. Uh, it's a Canadian horror comedy. Right, right. But, uh... Yeah, it just kind of reminded me of that because one of the last things you see, like, a bloody handprint going down the wall and he's like, as he's, you know. I like fights with invisible people on TV. I think that's a, I think that's a trope I really like that I hadn't thought about before. Uh, so Chiana's been poisoned. Guess what's really helpful when Chiana's been poisoned? Uh, aromatherapy? No, the fact that Aaron grabbed the poison darts from the other guy so that they... Uh, they can reverse engineer, Yeah, yeah. Zan, I know you're dying, but can you do a little, like, deathbed science here? Zan's doing a lot of deathbed stuff. Well, I mean, she's been in her deathbed for, like, five episodes. If you're killing off a character so the actress doesn't have to wear the makeup that's actually killing her in real life, maybe do it faster than this. <laughs> I like Zan, don't get me wrong, but this is we're, we've been in a holding pattern for a pretty long time. Well, we're coming out of that holding pattern because the generator on the Star Trek ship is shutting down, and that needs to be dealt with. Quick, we have to uh, touch the eggshells that we put in a silver dish. They actually look, it actually looks to me like PVC pipe and cement. Like, some things in this episode look really expensive, but that looks like a last minute. Yeah. <laughs> a real last minute prop. 
what do we have in the in the in the prop bin? <laughs> right. So they're going to try to starburst again. They did it last. They tried it last episode and it didn't work. But now they're going to. Now more time has passed. No, now now the Star Trek aliens aren't sabotaging it anymore. Nah. So, Raj is like, this is a terrible idea. I don't want to do this. And, and Stark's basically like, too bad. We had a quorum. I voted on your behalf. You voted for it. We're doing it. I love Stark. Me too. So, in order for this to work, Pilot needs to basically, like, put everything into it. But he is unconscious right now because of everything that's going on so they need to go and like throw cold water on him so he'll regain consciousness just long enough to starburst they need to go poke his adrenal gland like uh like with uma thurman in in pulp fiction yes they need to go uh pump him full of adrenaline and get his heart going again meanwhile jewel sees the snake and starts screaming because She's basically Jamie Lee Curtis in True Lies. She has, except that Jamie Lee Curtis becomes cool at the end of True Lies. She has she has one response to all stimuli, and that's to scream. Did she become cool at the end of True Lies? I, I mostly remember her running around holding the gun like it was a wet paper towel. That was, uh... At the very end of True Lies, she basically is also a spy. I have to say, uh, True Lies does not hold up. It's the movie James Cameron made in the middle of his divorce, and when you watch it, you're like, wow, he hates women. Mm. I, yeah. What is this, The Simpsons? Right? Yeah. Also, it's super racist, but also it hates women. Like, don't don't rewatch True Lies is, is the uh, the upshot of this. I mean, don't rewatch most movies from the 80s. It's one of those- That was th- the 90s. Or night. Honestly, don't watch- don't watch movies at all. The past was a mistake. The past was a mistake. Because you forget. You forget. What was... Oh, God. What were we watching? Oh, Splash. When we were watching Splash. Where they had that line where I'm like, I guess that wasn't as transphobic as it could have been. Right? Like, I was pleasantly surprised that that was minimally transphobic instead of the super transphobic direction I thought that was going to go into. Well, it, 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 honestly, the, the line you're talking about involved Tom Hanks because Daryl Hannah was all like, I have a, I have a dark secret I need to tell you. And Tom Hanks was trying to figure out what it is. And when he asked her if she was trans, he was like, cause that's fine. That's not an issue at all. It's only his his phrasing that was uh, outdated. Yeah. But he was like, that's cool. Yeah. The other line, I mean, I was pleasantly surprised by Splash being less offensive than I thought it would be, but also it's kind of a super boring movie. Like the the other... Very little happens in that movie. Yeah. I mean, the the other questionable line is John Candy writing into, was it Penthouse? Oh, where, yeah. Where he, he's writing a How I Turned a Lesbian story into Penthouse, but we're not supposed to think that it's true. No, no, we're not supposed to think that's true. Also, his character does the thing where he he, he oh, does oh, a yeah, reoccurring he... thing where he drops coins on the ground so he can bend down and look up women's skirts. But John Candy is this weird trope in romance movies where the main character has a best friend who's a creepy perv, specifically to make the main character look 
look good in comparison. It's one of those things that you don't notice until you do, and then you realize it's in, like, every rom-com. And I will give Splash this credit. Normally, you watch that, and you're like, well, why are you friends with this guy? That says a lot about you. But at least John Candy is meant to be Tom Hanks' brother. Yeah. Because, you know, the two of them look so much alike. But... There's a reason he hangs out with John Candy, and honestly, not for very much of the movie. It's also so weird structurally. Splash is very, very odd structurally. You don't see the mermaid, like, outside. The movie is 90 minutes, and you are 20 minutes in before you see Daryl Hannah. I mean, you see the mermaid as, like, a little kid at the beginning of the movie. Right, that's... Yeah, as like you said, as Daryl Hannah. Although it is super hilarious on Disney+, Plus the uh, the CGI hair covering her butt. Oh my god, it's so poorly done! I guess they figured that if you're watching Splash, you don't care about quality. I just... Why didn't they just leave in Daryl Hannah's butt? Like... Uh, because it's a family movie? Is Splash a family movie? Or a family service. Oh, Yeah. Although, is Splash a family movie? It, no, no, no. Okay, because I'm like, it's it's kind of too boring. boring for adults, but... Oh, I feel like it would be really boring for kids, too. Like, the first 20 minutes is all, like, financial stuff about their dad's business. Yeah. Actually, I guess it's not really for anyone. I, I remembered liking Splash, but then I watched it, and I'm like, nothing really happens in this? Like, there's a lot of, you're like, oh... Other mermaid stories are pulled from this, but then you're like, oh, wait, no, this is It's just, just the most generic mermaid story that could possibly be. Was it Ron Howard's first movie? It was. Okay, because I'm like, this really feels like someone had, like, a student film that they took to the next level or something. I do think Splash might be the first mermaid movie that had the device where when the mermaid is on land, the legs are feet, and when she gets wet, they turn back into a fin. <sighs> I don't know. The, the, the thing that they had I, the thing that they had in play, which I was like, okay, this is just so that there's a time limit, which there really doesn't need to be. The whole, like, she can only be human for a week. Why? It adds literally nothing to the story except a ticking clock that doesn't matter. Yeah, I... I... Look, this isn't this isn't this isn't the place to do like a, a a script doctor on Splash, but I have a lot of things I would do differently if I were writing Splash. We should just hang on, hang on until the mermaid episode of Charmed to talk about it. There you go. Although if you do want to see somebody else write a fix it fic about Splash, you can uh, follow Max on Twitter where he's been rewriting uh Splash as a a gay rom-com. Rom-com. I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to distance it from being Splash, but... Well, because you realize Splash is so generic that basically... It's just a mermaid story. You basically just wanted to write a gay mermaid story. A merman story. Yeah. And it's good. I'm I'm really enjoying it. Oh, thank you. It's not in order at all. It's basically just a collection of random scenes. Yeah. that's the fun thing about doing a really generic story is that you can basically just dip in at any part. You know generally what's going on. Exactly. Farscape. Anyways, Anne's going to make the serum for Chiana so that she doesn't die, which is great. Chiana not dying is good, especially since Zan is, you know, definitely dying. Did Zan and Chiana have their dying conversation last episode? or is that... Yeah, they did. Okay, because it feels like this is their dying moment but i kind of remembered them having one anyway where having one before where 
Chiana talked about Zan being like her mom or something, and they, they had a moment. Remember, Chiana? Chiana was didn't want to leave Moya because she loves Moya, but she didn't want to die. Yeah, and. Now, actually, Zan and Dargo get a moment where Zan tells him that when she first got on to Moya as a prisoner, she heard that there was a Luxon on board, and she was actually hoping that he would succumb to hyper-rage and kill her because that's she, she was in a moment of really deep despair, and life is pretty funny. Life comes at you fast. And he's like, I'm not going to kill you. I want to save you. And she's like, that's because you are a creature of deep compassion. Uh, oh, who? Oh. <laughs> what? If you're dying, you can just say whatever bullshit you want. I guess that's true. Who's going to call you out on it? But yeah, Dargo's a creature of deep compassion. Rigel and Pilot are getting ready to 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 poke Pilot's Moya's adrenal gland. I think I said Pilot earlier, but it, it's Moya's adrenal gland. It's just that they're symbiotically yeah, connected. So Pilot's hooked up to it. Yeah. And... Uh, Stark just has this, like, throwaway line where he's like, well, yeah, no, Pilot really likes you, to, to Rigel, because Rigel feels like nobody likes him. And Rigel's like, Pilot likes me? Like, like-likes? No, God. not like that. No, but... Does pa- Pilot like Rigel? No, but this is important because Rigel is motivated to help Pilot now because nobody likes him. So having someone like him is, like, surprisingly touching to him. Nobody likes Millhouse. <laughs> Exactly. So, I do love how John kind of goes in because Jules freaking out again. He's like, "Look, I know that this is a confusing new world for you, but dear God, you need to shut up until everyone's not currently dying. Please, for the love of God, shut up for about ten more minutes, and then we will deal with whatever bullshit crap you have." What? Yeah, and he tells her, he's like, oh my god, shut up about your cousins. I didn't murder your cousins. They they were near death. One of them lived for like two seconds before he died. And the other one I wasn't involved with at all. Yeah, I don't know if you know this, but during brain surgery isn't really a time where you're, you know, issuing commands. Like, Yeah, she's like, everything here is terrible. And he's like, welcome to Moya. Like. Yes, you're not making it better. Shut up, shut up, shut up. <laughs> Which I would feel bad for Jewel if I didn't find her intensely irritating. She gets, she she calms down. Hmm. It's like, I, I feel like Jewel becomes a lot more likable when her response to everything isn't an ear-splitting scream. <laughs> like, imagine how annoying Dargo would be. I know you joked about him never using it, but... Imagine how annoying Dargo would be if every time there had been any conflict in the first few episodes, he had just tongue-lashed whoever he had a conflict with and they passed out. Honestly, I think I probably would have liked Dargo better. Uh, I don't know. It's more she's Dawn. I love Dawn. Yeah, but she's, you know, the get out, get out, get out. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, where where she's so angry and and... It's like, I your anger is understandable, but not justified, and all it's doing is stopping the plot from moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I get why you're feeling the feelings you're feeling, but also, you are just making everything worse. You need to just do nothing for a short period of time. Yeah. 
So the snake shows up, the wormhole snake shows up where Jewel is, and she starts screaming, which we see is melting the handcuffs on the Star Trek alien. Uh-oh. Thanks, Jewel. And then the snake starts chasing Aaron and John, and John says he has a plan, and Aaron's like, your plans are terrible! Which, that's not fair. I mean, they've got a pretty solid hit ratio. And he, he makes that argument. He's like, my plans always work. You notice how not dead we are currently? Yeah. Although I, I think this is an interesting, like, this is kind of just a throwaway, but I think it's kind of interesting that John's argument is that his plans always work, and her argument is that his plans never work the way they're supposed to. They always have to pivot to do something else, and John's like, the pivoting, the the room for maneuvering is part of the plan. Okay, so there's this... uh x-men panel uh-huh. where uh someone asks cyclops they're like do you have a plan b and he's like b s- saying that i have a plan b suggests that i only have 26, 26 plans. plans and someone's like uh this is proof that cyclops is a bad leader because he's just planning for his plans to fail and everyone kind of dogpiled on that person with you know no, sticking to one plan that's clearly not working is bad leadership. Good leadership is having alternate plans for every contingency. Yeah. You idiot. I mean, it's a running joke in Leverage that, like, uh, the the guy who's kind of the the leader of that group has, you know, 26 plans at all times. So, John's plan is to run onto Dargo's ship with Aaron and figure out how to activate the force field. Mm-hmm. And it works. Good luck with that snake, Jewel. But, uh... I know, the snake was following them, not sticking around with Jewel and what's-her-face. But also, now they can't get to pilot. So, uh, they can't help him when he... They can't help him when he gets that adrenaline shot that he's getting. John calls, uh, Dargo Heavy D, which is an unfortunate nickname. I like that nickname! So, Aaron being part pilot has to do something... Yeah, well, so Aaron Aaron puts on a Aaron puts on a, sh- a suit because uh, all the crap they've been doing, Moya is completely decompressed right now. So Aaron puts on a suit to try to get to pilot since John basically can't now, and it. She also she has that thing where she has some pilot DNA. So she does. She does have some pilot DNA. So the big issue right now is that they're all going to run out of air and die. That, yeah, that is the big issue. And Xana's praying because you know. Okay, so this is, like, I thought this was going to be Zan's big speech moment, but then she gets an even longer speech later when she's dying. But this is her come-to-God moment where she's on her knees, and there's a halo of light behind her, and she's praying to the heavens, and she's like, I know that I've done many, many bad things in my life, but I would give anything, goddess, for you to protect the people of Moya, and to save them, and to bring them into the light of your glorious gloriness oh i'm i'm pious and blah 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 religious stuff and you know there's a light shining on me from above please save my friends and then they manage to get air and she's like oh oh i knew you were out there goddess i knew you were out there well okay so to be fair the part of what she's praying is that she was she was entrusted with the safety of of Moya and she feels like she 
she needs the goddess's help or else she will have have lost that and you know she uh, it's it's also a good moment to remind us how much responsibility she feels for the safety of Moya. Mm. So yeah, Aaron Aaron is uh made it to pilot's den. The air is back. Miniature crisis within the larger crisis resolved. <laughs> yeah. So now John gives a big speech to the Star Trek alien because the Star Trek alien's like why is your living ship what why do you value your living ship over the lives of my family and John's like because Moy is my family and family 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 found family is family 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 and we see the Star Trek alien break out of her cuffs and then Scorpius the Harvey Shows up and is like... Brain Scorpius. Brain Scorpius, right, Harvey. Is I like, love how Brain Scorpius is basically John now. Like, he spent so much time in John's head that he's kind of acting like John-flavored Scorpius. Yeah, yeah. And he's kind of mocking John here. He's like... He's like, oh, look at you being the cheerleader and rousing everybody to, to do what they need to do. And this is also the moment where we get that John is not as in control of Head Scorpius as, you know, he should be. Okay, so maybe not. It really seems like this whole thing is shot on a green screen because John shifts back into his head brain to have a conversation with Scorpius. And they're both in tuxedos on the side of the road and, like, they try hitchhiking and the whole thing feels really green screened, even though I'm not sure it is. You know, I think the transfer on Hulu Prime is just weird. There's been a lot of weird coloration this episode. Yeah, because when we were watching it, like, on our big TV, the whole thing felt really fake looking. But So, John leaves, leaves Head Scorpius behind. He finds Jewel, who is unconscious because the Star Trek alien has broken free and knocked her unconscious. And Aaron is waking up Pilot, who is getting his adrenaline shots. She's like, don't fall asleep! You need to wake up! And she's she's kicking him to keep him awake, which is kind of funny looking. Yeah. Yeah. Because she has to be delicate. It's probably a kind of delicate puppet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, John... Finds the Star Trek alien. She's on her ship. And he's like, you don't have to do this. You can come with us. And she's like, um, no. Remember the whole thing about how they'll kill my family if they don't get the information? So... Yeah, I'm just gonna kill you. I'm gonna, you know, kill you, kill Moya, kill everyone you love so that the people I love are safe. And John's like, so I'm gonna have to shoot you. And the Star Trek alien's like, yeah, basically. Yep. Yep. She, uh... Opens her gills to shoot poison darts at John, and Jewel shows up and starts screaming. Oh yeah, she's filled the uh, chamber with this gas that'll make everything explode if he tries to shoot his pistol at her. Right, so he can't shoot his pistol, and she's gonna shoot her darts at him, and Jewel shows up and starts screaming so that the uh, the darts go soft and don't hit John, which is... Amazing. Yes, that is a solid use of her scream. I guess the darts are metal, natural metal. Mm, sure. But yay, Jewel wasn't entirely useless. I, I'd i say that was pretty useful. Yeah. So John kicks... The alien into the... The generator, core, yeah. 
and she like dust like it's charmed or i will something. say yeah that effect looks really cheap <laughs> so yeah so, and and this is this is by the way I guess I guess to be fair they've been going through a lot but this is the first moment where John realizes that Jules scream melts metal. Mm. Does that come up a lot in later episodes? I feel like she uses it quite a bit. I mean, it does basically it would basically make I was going to say phasers but whatever laser guns they have that would be a good way of getting rid of laser guns, right? Can she direct it or is it just everything in the general it's area? It's just it's a it's a it's an area effect. It seems weird that it didn't melt their guns when they were fighting that snake thing earlier, but whatever. Yeah. So, they figure out how to blow the generator, which was the original plan. Star Trek Alien isn't here to do it now, so now they have to do it. They're going to blow the generator, and when the generator blows, they'll have just a couple of seconds where they can starburst away, because everyone will be re-phased. And then when they starburst away, the, like, gravitational pull of the wormhole will pull Moya to, you know, out the correct way, probably. So... And then Zan gets her moment with Jewel. Yeah, where she tells Jewel to shut up. I love that she had speeches with everyone else, you know, on the ship, and she just she she, she just tells Jewel to shut up, and that's her speech with her. Which fair. Yeah. Okay. So- oh, uh, and by the way, Pilot throws out a line. There's a lot of techno babble that happens now for like the next five minutes while they try to escape. Uh, but one of the techno babble things that gets thrown out is that. When they were phased, the Star Trek alien downloaded all of the information into Moya's brain. Not all the wormhole information, but all of the, like, beacon information. So that's why Pilot knows how to do what they need to do. Mm-hmm. Just to close that uh, loophole. Plot hole. So, basically, someone has to push this one button. And whoever pushes the button will die, but will save the ship. Yeah, so John tells Aaron that she needs to get on the manual controls for Moya in case Pilot gets unconscious when the starburst starts. And Aaron's like, but you're better at tra- at traversing wormholes than I am. And he's like, no, no, you need to do it. I'm going to I'm gonna do the generator thing. And that's when they all realize, oh, whoever does the generator thing is going to die. Yeah. And then Zan's it, like, um... It's, it's, it's that super funny, but not intentionally so scene from infinity war i think where hawkeye and black widow are both like punching each other over who gets to jump off the death cliff yeah although in this case uh instead of either of them doing it zan's like uh i obviously i should and then she takes off her hood to show them how much she is dying yeah she's like look i know that you want to get me to a planet so you can replant me or whatever but that's not gonna happen i'm already dying just let me push the button and they're like zan no and she's like okay I'm going to give a big, long speech about how much I love all of you and how I've lost my faith, but through my journeys with all of you, I found my faith again, and, you know, I thought I might be a bad person, but now I know I'm a good person, and I'm going to go to heaven because you helped me redeem myself, and I've been redeemed for all my past actions, and I've accepted that they're all part of the goddess's plan, and something, something, found family, something, something. Okay, but the really heartbreaking part of this is that while this is going on, Stark knows what's happening, but he can't get to her. Okay, yes. The thing that I don't like this speech, it's fine, but we've also been doing some version of this speech for several episodes at this point, and I am very, very bored with it. But Stark is flipping out because he's trapped in a different part of the ship. 
And I think that was a good move on their part. Mm-hmm. Because you really get the desperation and the fact that if if Stark was in this room, he would stop Zan from doing this. He would take her place. Yeah, you're right. It's it's honestly I love when that happens when like the emotional moment and the practical for the plot moment like coincide like that. And Zan like she kisses John and she looks like she's gonna kiss Aaron, but she doesn't because this was the early two thousands. She just put her hand on her face. Yeah. It's the same thing, except she doesn't lean in for the kiss. It's the exact same thing she did with John and Stark on a different part of the ship. He just kind of collapses. But then she, like, reaches out with her mind and is like, you know, I'm here. I'm at peace. Guide me to death. Do your do your, do your, your thing. And remember. But, like, hold off long enough for me to push this one button. You're right. But guide me, guide me to death. So I won't be alone when I push the button. And also remember, uh, every person that Stark helps guide to death, like a piece of them lives on in him. Yeah, so now he'll have Xan inside him fighting off the thousands of horrible people he's murdered with his brain powers. (laughs) And then Rigel says, goodbye, you big, blue, beautiful bitch. Because we had to get Rigel calling Xan a bitch in one more time, although it was with affection this time, so... Yeah. So then Xan... You know, does the thing to the generator and is, you know. It really, everyone's like three feet away from her. It really feels like somebody could have just like thrown their shoe at the control panel. Well, as you said at the top, it seems like a thing longer would have. uh, (laughs) Would have solved this. So the ships separate and because of where Xan was standing, she is on the Star Trek ship, which. It also feels like she probably could have jumped for it. Well, that's what, to be fair, that's what John said he was going to do. He was going to do it and then jump. And he was all like, it's fine. I'll definitely get over in time. And I don't think she really did have time to get over in time. But anyway, now she's on the other ship and you we see her beautifully at peace. And then the ship explodes. Yes, we see her holding her hands out like very, very, very Christy. And then she orbs out. She dissipates into blue light. And then Aaron does have to drive the ship. So I guess Pilot's not in good shape. And everyone gets tossed all around. Cause what is this, Star Trek? Not anymore. That Star Trek ship is gone. But they drive through the wormhole. They get where they need to be. I... You know what? There's lots of sparks and people falling down. But, you know, they, they make it. I feel like the show uses the same tossed around Moya footage twice in a row. If, well, if not the same, very, very similar. Maybe not. Maybe just all tossed around footage looks the same. Yeah, I mean, there's only so many ways you can pretend that you're falling down. But they get out of the wormhole. They're safe. Except for Zan. And they all lived happily ever after, except for the one who died. Yeah. And we see kind of, we, we go, we get a really beautiful shot through the ship where we don't see any we don't see any of the crew members we just see kind of the after effects of the the battle not really a battle but the the incident situation the situation on the ship and then we go to pilot's den and rigel is there next to pilot and he's like hey pilot i like you too and pilot's like what are you talking about i I love I know it's a puppet and it can't really make a ton of facial expressions, but I love the sort of blank stare it has after Rigel's like, I was checking in on you because I like you, because you're my friend. And Pilot's like, Aaron, you okay? (laughs) Pilot also tells Rigel that while he was unconscious, when Zan was like taking some of his pain, she went into his head and they had their goodbye speech inside his head. 
and uh, Chiana's upset, obviously, and Jewel is trying to, like, follow her, and I don't know. I don't know what Jewel wants, but I, to, for it to be 22 years ago, I guess. And Jewel's like, wait up! And Chiana's like, okay, I'm not your friend. I well, do not like you. Well, it doesn't help that Jewel calls her a prostitute. Jewel's like, hey, wait up! You, you lower. Like she, she calls her a prostitute for literally no reason. Like, although, I, although then when Shiana's like, "If you want to keep up, you need to get better shoes," and she says, "Do you know how much these shoes cost?" And Shiana looks at them and she goes, "For me, three sex acts. For you, I'm guessing nine. Which is a fun way of flipping Jewel calling her a prostitute for no reason on her. Well, Jewel has no reason to do it, but we do know that Shiana did sex work. Yeah. And, like, it's not... I, it's not shameful. It's not shameful. It's just clearly Jewel was intending it as a derogatory thing. And Shanna's like, yes, I have sex for money. It's weird. Who cares? It's weird how in space shows where it's, like, a completely alien civilization, pun kind of intended, where that wouldn't necessarily be a taboo because it's kind of a weird thing to make a taboo yeah oh like, it's someone doing labor in exchange for money well you know why because capital doesn't like for the workers to own the means of production which they do with sex work so you know it's a danger to capitalism is that too much no it's not it's just it's it's one of those things where you don't think about how weird something is until you try to remove yourself from it like trying to explain certain idioms where you're like okay you have to go back so far to find these very bizarre root causes or all of these things that we all just kind of accept as tradition that are the result of ad campaigns in the early uh, 20th century uh-huh engagement rings straight up weren't a thing that was not a thing yep. before the De Beers company was like, hey, we have all of these rocks we really need to sell. Yeah, these non-precious, basically worthless rocks, we need to make them worth something because we killed a lot of people to get them. So, we're gonna... Capitalism! I mean, a lot of this is coming from Adam Ruins Everything, which is a very good show, but... It's weird how every other episode is basically just, hey, you know this thing you accept as fact? It's because of capitalists in the early 20th century trying to find either, you know, a way to sell people things or a way to not be culpable for the bad things their products were doing. Jaywalking is only illegal because car companies wanted to stop being blamed for killing people. Like... Yep. They did a whole ad campaign about how the streets are for cars now, so everyone needs to get used to that. You are the bad person if you get killed by a car. Wow, that's somehow more depressing than the scene we're going back to. Where Aaron is talking to Stark, and Stark is actually in pretty good shape, and Aaron's like, I am worried about how well you're taking this. Why aren't you sadder that your girlfriend died? And he's like, well, I I brain ate her soul essence and now she's in my mind tummy forever. And Aaron's like, I wish you had phrased that differently. Also, also, he lets her know that Zan was at peace when she passed on. That she went to the good place or what have you. And that she had the like she had faith when she died that she knew that there was a good afterlife which 
honestly, I feel like it's not really a faith situation anymore because we know there's a canonical good afterlife you get guided to. Right. Well, and that's the thing he talks about when he guides people to death. Usually they're, you know. Scared. Yeah, and she wasn't. So he feels he feels at peace. He should uh, talk to Dargo some because apparently Dargo's culture is a whole sex to death thing. Yeah. Where in order to get to heaven, you have to be having sex with someone when you die. Like a better version of the Viking thing where you have to die in battle. Yes, way better. So then we cut to John inside of his head with head Scorpius watching the Three Stooges at a drive-in theater in his head. And, you know, we see the violence of the Three Stooges and Scorpius comments, why is it always the gentle ones who suffer? And of course, John takes this personally because it he's meant to. And he gets very upset and credits. I mean, that's supposed to be about Zan, but Zan's not really gentle. I, I mean... She... I don't think it's necessarily just about Zan, because he says, why is it always the gentle ones who suffer? Like, Zan suffered, Moya suffered. Mm. I, you know, the... Literally everyone on this ship is suffering right now, and no one on this ship has done anything to earn this suffering. Speaking of weird ideas that we as a culture have... I think I would have liked this episode more if it was like the second episode of the season, but it just, it really felt like we've been dragging this out for so long and I'm glad it's over, which is weird because Zan was one of my favorite characters for a long stretch of the show, but like. Well, a lot of the emotional moments here really worked for me and hit really hard, but a lot of the action stuff about separating the two ships, it's just like, uh, it's just long long sections of techno babble and we have star trek for that we have star trek for that i we i really feel like it could have been condensed into one episode we it could have been mostly emotional moments with zan's death and then a lot less of the alien ship that that's what would have been ideal for me hmm. but i didn't need the cgi snake i know it was there because you didn't have two episodes worth of plot then don't make it two episodes. Well, yes. But I'm not going to discount how strongly those emotional scenes hit. Which brings us into our segments. And our first segments are usually a distant part of the universe about world building and strange alien creatures about puppetry. But since this was a two-parter, we pretty much covered all of that in last week's episode. In the last episode. As I said back then, I like how sleek and sort of it aged into being retro-futuristic, the uh, Star Trek alien design, because, you know, Moya's dirty. Space is dirty in Farscape, and I do like how sleek and modern the Star Trek aliens ship and stuff looked. The fact that they were literally in silver jumpsuits. I like that, but we talked about that last time. Yeah. So, I really think the segment that really matters this episode is the wonders that I've seen. Which is what emotionally resonated with you in this episode. Okay, so a lot of it fell really flat to me. The two things that I really liked were both Stark scenes. Mm -hmm. The scene where he kind of flips out at Jewel and basically threatens to kill her. Like, I get it from Jewel's perspective how horrifying it is and, you know, in general. But I just, I really like how, I'm trying to think of a good way to phrase this. I really like how Stark is not handling his emotions. Mm. 
And I feel like that comes back later when he's trying to get, like, you can really feel his desperation when he's trying to get to Zan to stop her. Like, that, that is the emotional linchpin of the episode for me. The bit where he is trying to get to Zan and he can't and he just collapses. Yeah. But I feel like that moment gets earned by how sort of much he's losing it up to that point. Just the desperation. That moment hits really hard for me, too. Weirdly, though, the moment that I like the best in this episode doesn't have anything to do with Zan. It's Dargo and John's moment, the the waiting for the wheel moment when he talks about, you know, his grandmother saying sometimes you're ground down and sometimes you're lifted up. Like the, the moment between those two, it I, I feel that moment. Hmm. So next time we're going to be talking about different destinations. One of my favorite episodes. I'm very excited to watch this episode with you. And not just because it's a time travel episode, and y'all know I love a time travel story. The Amazon Prime description is, The crew of Moya are transported back in time into the middle of a bloody siege between Peacekeeper mercenaries and the Venic Horde. Have have you seen the Venic before? No. Okay. And... Honestly, we have a run of really good episodes after that, because right after Different Destinations is Eat Me... And then it's Thanks for Sharing, which is kind of an amazing standalone episode. And it'll be good to have... Honestly, Different Destinations is a standalone episode, too. And after everything we've been through, I feel like some standalone episodes are going to be good. Yes. So I guess that'll about do it. I guess that'll do it for this week. Our show is partially listener-supported. If you want to be one of our supporters, you should head over to our website, www.welcometotelevision.net, and click on our Patreon link. We'd like to thank our current $5 and above patrons, Beryl, Patricia, Sam, Cassidy, Alex, Alicia, Orion, Maracruz, Rosa, Javier, Benjamin, Kyle, Kate, and Jen. If you'd like to support the show in other ways, you could always rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. If you want to talk about this episode, or any episode, or any episode of any television show, you should join our Facebook page, Welcome to Television. We can also be contacted at I Love TV Zines on Twitter, or at I Love Television Zines at gmail.com. So until next time, I'm Tina. And I'm Max. And this has been Welcome to the Uncharted Territories. Mm-hmm.